I invite your attention to the subject of repentance this morning. It's a grand subject and it's throughout the Bible. And I'm going to just start in the book of Genesis and then I'm going to proceed. And in the book of Genesis, page, excuse me, chapter 40, 42, I'd like to read this particular verse, verse 28. And the Lord being our helper this morning, as the brother said, to remind us of things that we have studied. Uh, that's a very key, important aspect of the work of the Spirit to remind us of things that we have in our heart and that we've studied, that we've learned, we've meditated upon. The Spirit of God will bring to our remembrance the things that are important and pertinent to you and to His glory. And in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 42, let's just read this verse and we'll proceed. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack, and in their heart failed them. Excuse me, and their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? Now, this is a story that reflects Joseph's brethren, and they were in great fear and trepidation because while they were strangers in Egypt, they feared the attention that they were now receiving by Joseph, who they were unaware of. He was their very brother. And one thing led to another to increase this rapidity of fear, almost to a climax where they were afraid for their life. And now they found out that the money that they gave to the Egyptians for the corn, as you know there was a famine and Jacob sent their the children down to uh, fetch some food. And then on the way back they found out when they stopped at an inn to replenish their, uh, the animals that the money was in the very top or the mouth of the sack. And what has now permeated their thinking was the original sin of theirs, if you will, when they traded their own brother Joseph into slavery. Now it's been some 20-some years, and that sin inflicted them. It stuck with them. You know, sin has a way of doing that. And now they come to this dramatic phrase, what is this? They came to the very pinnacle of this heart-wrenching affliction and grief and burden. What is this that God hath done? Now, I want to talk to you this morning about the fact and the feelings of repentance, the sorrowfulness of heart. Now, I want to state the fact of it very clearly from Scripture because in our day and age, many of us have Many of us have graduated from the liberal theology of fundamentalism and we're always taught certain things about biblical uh, teachings that just are not aligned with the truth. Uh, repentance, in the very first point, the, the fact that I want to present, is something that is gospel-oriented. 
In other words, repentance is not the beginning of God's grace in your heart. It's a reflection of God's grace in your heart. It's a evidence of God's grace in your heart. Repentance is something that comes after regeneration. Now, that word regeneration is simply the word that denotes the new birth in our life. That new birth is a work by the sole agent of the Spirit of God. It's a mysterious work upon the soul. Jesus said of himself, excuse me, to Nicodemus, he said, concerning the new birth, you can't tell whence it comes or whether it goes. Now, you think about your own natural birth. Anybody remember their own natural birth? I don't remember it. Now, they say I was born, but I can't remember it. Now, it's evident that I'm standing here, so evidently I was born. Long time ago, I won't tell you when. But so is the spiritual birth. Now, interesting enough, it seems that gospel conversion, belief, repentance, and those great experiences that we share together in, we do remember. They're profound because lights went off and our hearts were opened and we embraced things that we didn't embrace before. But it came through the understanding primarily of the gospel truth. And so repentance is an afterwork from regeneration. So if we could look at it from a biblical standpoint, we would say regeneration represents the beginnings of grace in the heart. And then what happens? Well, we believe, we repent, and we are baptized. That seems to be the narrative throughout the book of Acts. There's a lot of, for instance, uh, on the day of Pentecost. There's, there's actually the day of Pentecost. And then there's miniature Pentecost throughout, when I say three of them at least that I know of, throughout the book of Acts. And they seem to follow the same exact pattern. Well, with little variation. Now, we are reminded by looking at this example in Acts 2 uh, to remember the fact that they are the Acts of the Apostles and they're not really the template for church per se. You know, the epistles are. But still, we see some experiences in the book of Acts that relate and that can relate to this great doctrine or teaching called repentance. Now, on the particular day in which we mentioned, there were Jews from all over the world that descended upon Jerusalem at that time because it was Pentecost. And it was a great feast, one of three that were uh, placed a requirement on all males, 20 and up, to be there. They had to be there. And that's why they're here. And on this particular occasion, in the upper room, the Apostle Peter is preaching, but not before the Holy Spirit descended upon them all. The Spirit of God moved a sound from heaven and came and permeated the crowd. And they were amazed and they marveled and they said one to another, Behold, are they not all Galileans? You know, they were speaking uh, in their own tongue wherever they were from. And they could understand in their own particular language. And so there was a lot going on. And there were those among the Jews in Jerusalem who attended this great meeting who were actually part and parcel uh, of the crucifixion of the Lord himself. 
And that's amazing. And the Holy Spirit descended upon this crowd. And those same men who were guilty. Now we're all guilty in a sense, right? We were all there in a legal way. We were represented there. So in, in a great sense, in a legal covenant sense, it was my sin that nailed the Lord to the cross. But these men, certain men, were actually there. And the Holy Spirit descended upon this crowd and they were, after having heard Peter preach this first introductory sermon, which has just been weeks, if you will, from Peter's denial himself of the Lord. So you can see how the Lord is working even in Peter's life. He's called on Peter, who's been restored to the faith through repentance, to preach this great introductory sermon of confirmation. And what happened? The Spirit of God descended. And when they heard this, these Jews who crucified the Lord of glory, you think about what greater sin a man could do than to participate in the actual physical crucifixion of Christ. He said they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, these are devout Jews. These are men of God. These have already experienced the beginnings of grace in their heart. And now they cry out, What shall we do? And the answer came, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. They would be forgiven through the uh, repentance. So repentance, even in this gospel sense, relates to the fact whereby you are receiving the remission of sins, the washing away of sins. When you believe in the gospel, literally, in a sense, and in a greater sense, you are reconciled in your mind. Now, you've been reconciled legally at the cross. Jesus paid for your sins. Covenantly, the elect of God are, in the sight of God, accepted in, his, in Him. They're legally justified. But, in a practical way, that forgiveness comes when we believe. In other words, when we receive it, when that Reconciliation takes place in our hearts uh, through faith, in other words. So the, and this is all gospel-oriented. Now, <clears throat> it includes two things when we think about repentance. It includes very in, two important things. It, re, it includes a turning from and a turning to. So repentance isn't just a one-way street, for instance. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, we read this which I think it doesn't mention the word repentance, but we can see the effects of it. Here are Gentiles that have become part of the church at Thessalonica. And this is what Paul reminds them of their experience. He said, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so they turned, and that's what that word repentance means, literally. It's a change of mind. It's a turning. Now, regeneration, as a matter of fact, is a new heart. And repentance is a change of mind. Some refer to repentance as a change of heart. Here it is, right here. They turned to God from idols. And so repentance includes those two very important points. Somebody might say, well, I repented, but never... Uh, you see the evidence in their life of having 
a life that is consecrated to God. In other words, they, they gave lip service. They didn't give real, actual demonstration of true repentance. Remember, there's always look-alikes. There's always parody in the spiritual realm. In other words, uh, you know, fake news, for instance, is, is, a, is a very popular phrase that we're hearing all over the world. Well, it's nothing new. There's fake repentance. Uh, there's fake prayer. There's fake righteousness. You know, there's always an alternative to the true. That's all that's saying. So, this ongoing work uh, in a gospel sense, let me share with you uh, a definition from the book of Hebrews, since we're speaking about the fact of it. And this is found in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at the negative side just for a second here. It demonstrates a person in the Bible who you all remember as the name Esau. This is Jacob's brother. The scripture says in verse 17, For ye know how that afterward when he, Esau, would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. And after that terrible experience of selling his birthright to Jacob, he was, you know, he he traded in basically for a morsel of food. And then after that, having been rejected... He found no place, the Bible says, for repentance. And this is the negative sense. And I want to note, in the center column reference, it says this, that he found no place or way to change his mind. So repentance reflects a change in direction. And in that particular case, uh, regardless of lip service, he found no place or there was no genuine change of mind that took place in Esau's experience. That's all I point that out for. Now, secondly, repentance is not only in a gospel-oriented sense, in other words, it comes through the gospel, it's beyond regeneration, but secondly, it's ongoing. Repentance is just not a one-time deal, and that's it in your life. It's a continual thing because it has its eyes or its sight fastened on Two very important things. Number one, a relationship that is with God, right? We turn from idols to serve God. So it fosters a relationship with God. And then secondly, it fosters a relationship with others. With others. And the Lord himself, Jesus, of all the people that speak of repentance in the Bible, there's no other personality in the book that speaks more of than Jesus. Why? Because he's interested in his people having the proper relationship with God and with himself and with others. We see this played out. For instance, in the churches to the, uh, in seven, uh, of, of Asia, the seven churches in Asia, minor, that he addresses in the book of Revelation... Of those churches that he addresses, like Ephesus, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamos, and Laodicea, all those churches were given the message to repent. They were churches. And so he he encroached those people to repent so as to restore the proper relationship a church should have to their God and also to others. You can see that as well. Uh, Over there in the epistle of John, the scripture speaks about those who say they have no sin. Uh, They deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. And then that's in verse 8 of the first chapter. And then he says in verse 9, if we confess 
our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all iniquity. And so we have this idea of this fellowship being restored through confession or repentance. That's what that means. But if we do not confess and we're hard-hearted and we do not repent, then we're like the previous verse which says uh, we lie, we do not do the, we do not the truth, we deceive ourselves, and he says the truth is not in us. In a practical way. In other words, it's not being manifested outwardly. You know, so what's in the paper, what we believe academically, is not brought to fruition in an actual way. Now, repentance is a very popular topic in the Old Bible, or excuse me, the Old Testament. Don't want to say the Old Bible. It's just as relative today as it is then. But it's a very popular subject in the Old Testament. It runs the gamut. One particular... Have you ever been to Ocean City or in some big event and you see up in the sky a little plane and behind it a banner? You know, they didn't have airplanes in the Old Testament. But they did have banners and they did have flying banners like the scroll, the flying scroll, Zechariah chapter 5. In other words, God had a variety of ways, very unique ways I might say, to get the people's attention, His people's attention, oftentimes to repent. In that particular case, it was a big scroll, a flying billboard, if you will. And uh, it had two messages, one on the front, one on the back. One on the front conveyed, you know, thou shalt not blaspheme. And the one on the back said, you know, something like, thou shalt not steal. So he took a commandment, thou shalt not, from both sides, or from each one of the tablets of stone, to convey to his own people to repent of their sins. Many of the minor prophets, the book of Hosea, for instance, is a book given in, in, in a large part to repenting and using, of course, Ephraim, uh, the children of Israel to the north, Ephraim in particular as a representative of that, who continually sinned uh, by serving idols instead of God, and God called on him throughout that book to repent. And yet he considered it a strange thing. He considered the law of God a strange thing. He was so warped by the culture around him that the Bible itself was alien to him, you see. Let me just give you a couple examples real quick as I move on because I want to get to the latter part of this subject. I think you all have the idea of the fact of repentance down pretty good. That it, pre, uh, that, it, that it follows after regeneration, that, it restore, that it's an ongoing work, it's a continual work. But watch this as we see this active, activated in the life of God's children. Now during, of course, Ezekiel's time, chapter 3, we read this because there's a lot of portions in the Old Testament that speak of wickedness. And we automatically just assume that he's talking about the unregenerate, those who've never had the beginnings of God's sovereign grace in their heart, never been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that is a false premise. In other words, to conclude that when he speaks of wicked people in the Old Testament to say they're unregenerate, you've got to read a little closer. You've got to read a little closer. You're really talking about his people. Notice this, Ezekiel chapter 3. I mean, by the way... Can God's people do wickedness? Well, can they? I was visiting a, an old home yesterday, a retirement home. You know, it was my weekly rounds visiting the infirmed. And this one dear woman, 
she hollered at one of the participants that are helping her, oh, you jerk. And, of course, I said, no, you shouldn't do that. That's not right to say that. That's not nice. And she turned to me and looked at me and said, well, you know, I got that arminess from my mother. I said, you sure did. You didn't get it from God. David said, I've been shaping the iniquity. She got that from her mother. That's true saying. That's a true saying. Can God's people do wickedness? You bet they can because their heart is just as sinful as any other natural man's heart. Our hearts are depraved, you see. Paul speaks about the motions of the flesh under the law of sin. These motions are the affections of the heart that are contrary to God. Well, anyway, here he says in verse 20 again, he said, When a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I'll lay a stumbling block before him, and shall die, because thou shalt not give in him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered. His blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doeth not sin, he shall surely live. Because why? He is warned and he is repented. Isaiah chapter 55. We'll move on to just, just to another scripture. One that you might be more familiar with in a different setting. He said, Let the unrighteous man, or let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. Now, a man who returns to the Lord has been there before. You can't return to something you've never been there before. And so he's asking this person, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He's talking about seeking the Lord while he may be found. We live in a day and age which is referred to by the Apostle Paul as the day of salvation. In other words, this is the day of repentance, if you will. In other words, that will lead me to the third and last point of the fact, and that is repentance is something that is granted. And we live in a day, a gospel day of judgment, wherein we have the opportunity as God's children to repent. Because the Bible says God grants repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He grants repentance. In other words, every heir of grace who does unrighteous work, who does wickedness, is given a warning from the Lord to repent of their sin and be restored to the fellowship of their Heavenly Father. And if you come to church and you're grumbling all the time and you don't get nothing out of the message and the Word of God just doesn't mean much to you, you don't feel like praying, you just feel rotten, you all over and you just can't get anything right, it may be because of unconfessed, unrepentive sin in your life. That's what I'm saying. And God says this is the way of restoration. Now we know all that too well in our own personal relationships with each other. Notice what Jesus said. If I can go back to one New Testament text, we'll leave the, we'll leave the Old Testament alone for a minute. He said in Luke chapter 17, verse 3, here's what Jesus said. If you don't like what I'm saying, listen to what he said. He said, take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. That's not too nice, is it? To be rebuked. But what's he saying? He's saying, 
I want you to do right. You've offended me. He said, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. See how that restores relationships? When somebody comes to you and says, you know, Brother Stephen, I'm offended at what you said. Now, I may, have say, I may say things that I may, you know, offend you, or I may do something that offends you, and if you come to me and you say, Brother Steve, you've offended me, you know what that'll do? Rebukes me by saying that, by the way. My heart is going to melt in your hands. That's what's going to happen. And you know what I'm going to do? By the sovereign grace of God, I'm going to repent. And I'm going to be restored to your fellowship. That's how it works. That's how it's designed. And it's a wonderful thing. That's why Paul says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. Profitable. Listen to that word. It's going to do you good. It's profitable for what? For doctrine. And then what? For reproof. Rebuking. And then what? Correction. Isn't that wonderful? And we can just get along with one another. We don't have to sit isolated by ourselves, all hemmed up, hating one another, devouring one another. We can be at peace because the object of repentance is peace and harmony and joy and love and these kind of things. We're not Christians, you know, they're not perfect. What's the bumper sticker say? They're just forgiven. That's what I like. God's people aren't perfect people. A church is not made up of self-righteous, perfect, never-sinned people. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. The church of God is a spiritual hospital. It's for the infirm. It's for the sinful. It's for those... You know, the Lord didn't come. He didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, did He? He came to call the sinners to repentance. The house of God is made up of repentive sinners. We're all in the same boat together. That's what that word means, fellowship. And we're together in this wonderful thing of life. Well, let's go to the feelings of repentance. Because if you know anything about uh, of being offended, somebody cross your path, somebody upsetting you, or you, you know, you, you know something about the feelings, the hardness. And that's why... I went first to the book of Genesis because Joseph's brethren, they were feeling this thing called guilt. There's a great burden until you repent of your sin. And you've got to carry that stuff, that guilty conscience. But I want to just pinpoint some of the feelings that the Apostle Paul speaks of in context of the same uh, subject in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He said in verse 10... For godly sorrow, this is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. And what he is saying is that when a man is sorrowful over his sin, that it leads him to deliverance, you see. He's delivered from the burden and the weight and the guilt, you know, I've sinned. And of course, the infraction here goes back to the first letter, and it's a very serious infraction. It was such a, an uh, incident that took place that it wasn't even named among the Gentiles. That's how bad it was. And the Apostle Paul wrote them a letter and he told them what to do. And that letter had a whole lot more going on to it than just that one episode. So much so that it caused the whole church to be sorrowful. And they repented. 
And Paul gets word of it through Titus and is just joyful over that. He's comforted by that because their relationship was restored through repentance, not only individually, but also as a church. And he says, this godly sorrow now has worked repentance to your salvation. He said, not to be repented of or not to be regretted. That's what he is saying there in that case. But the sorrow of the world worketh death and the, and the, um, and this, and the repentance a godly sorrow works life, if you will. It, 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 it brings everything. It refreshes. It's like hitting the refresh button on your computer. Everything is restored and it's wonderful. And you just keep on going. And that's why I'm saying that repentance is an ongoing thing. And uh, if you're in your relationship and you have this wonderful working out together, you know, when somebody makes a mistake and you ask for forgiveness or you forgive, it continually restores this relationship. But what happens when the red light stays red? What happens? What happens when somebody says, no, I won't forgive you? Well, that relationship breaks down. And, and it's irreconcilable. Irreconcilable. When you have unrepentance going on in any one individual in their hearts. Here are some of the feelings. Feelings. God made us with feelings, right? He made us all with feelings. We're just not, you know, stoic philosophers when it comes to the Bible. We feel these things, don't we? You know, back in... I won't tell you when I... I won't tell you what year I graduated from high school. I cannot do that. But I'll tell you, the best songs came out of the 70s. I think I just gave a hint. You know, like Feelings. A Brazilian artist by the name Morris Albert. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. And then, it, you know, the chorus, whoa, feelings. Brother Tom, you'd have to do that one for me. God made people with feeling, sensitivity. You know, it's interesting that Paul would say in Acts 17 to the idol-worshipping Gentiles, you know what he said? He said, seek the Lord while he may be found. He said, feel after him. You know, God has put a new heart in each one of his elect. In other words, we have the sensitive aspect or the affection for God. We can feel God, you see. And so... Here's some of these feelings that are God-like. He said, What carefulness it wrought in you. What clearing of yourselves. Notice the words. What indignation. Has anybody ever felt indignation? This righteous anger in your heart because you were offended? Sure you have. Why? Because you're human. What fear... Yea, what vehement desire. Notice these. These are all God-like. These are a reflection of God. This, this passion. Vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. He says, what revenge. Notice that word. Revenge. Does God... Yeah, God seeks vengeance. In other words, He, he seeks justice. And that's what you do when you've been offended. What revenge. This is a righteous anger that we have towards sin itself. 
And then he says, in all these things ye are approved. He says, in all these things ye have approved yourselves to be what? Clear in the matter. What he is saying is this. He says, through your repentance, you've been vindicated. You've, you, you've been acquitted by your own actions. And therefore, you've stayed off the hand of God. Because, here's the deal, if you don't repent of your sins, what did Jesus say to those churches? Behold, I come quickly. You see, the Lord will deal with you if you don't deal with it yourself. That's what I'm saying. Gospel-oriented uh, orientated, uh, obedience to the faith means I must repent of my sin or else God will deal with me. That's the warning. Well, let's go back now because I want to give you three illustrations of how these things are shown for us in the Bible. The first one is a very popular one and that's David. David sinned greatly. Oh my goodness. He sinned so greatly, he was even ignorant of it. Or maybe put it in the background. I mean, he sinned so greatly, he sinned with Bathsheba, and then he had Uriah, her husband, which was a good man. A good man because you can see the intimation of that in Nathan and his parable of a man who had his little ewe lamb and loved his ewe lamb. He cared for it. Much like Uriah loved his wife Bathsheba. He loved her. When he came home to battle that one time, he wouldn't even step into his house while men were on the battlefield. Oh, David tried to entice him because he had already done his dirty deed with Bathsheba and he wanted to cover his tracks. And so he had Uriah sent home in the heat of the battle in order to cover his tracks, but he wouldn't lie with his wife Bathsheba. No, he wouldn't. Well, anyway, that went on now. Ultimately, Uriah goes back to the battle. David tells the captain, you put him up in front. And he was slain. Nathan said, you murdered Uriah. You did it, David. And that whole year went, went by, and David's just living his his life, you know. And if you remember at that particular time, David was king, everything was going good. Excuse me. Everything was just peachy. And it was during that particular height of prosperity that he was subject to this great sin. And here is what he felt as expressed in several of the Psalms, but I'll choose 51. He said, Have mercy upon me, O God. You see... Nathan pointed the finger at him because David got upset at that rich man that wanted, had all his flock. This rich man had all his flock and went to this poor man and said, I want your lamb. And David said, man, I'm angry at that guy. Where is he that I can take vengeance upon him? And Nathan said, thou art the man. You are the man. And David humbled himself. He realized he sinned against God. And he cries out now and he says, Have mercy according to your loving kindness. You see, he's drawing upon God's kindness. God is kind to his people. That's what I mean. We live in the era of God granting repentance. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, there's no mercy that can... There's, God has no... It's not no mercy that cannot cover your sin. Mercy covers, grace covers, where grace, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. 
God's mercy, his kindness, is loving towards sinners. Tender, he calls them. He says, blot out my transgressions. Blot them out like they never happened before. And that's what God's mercy does. David felt this. He said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, notice this, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. In other words, let God be true and every man a liar. Because I sin, God is true. His mercy endureth forever. And he provides loving kindness to sinners such as you and I. If that weren't the case, then God's a liar. He stands unjustified. But he declares this truth. God's not going to change up. Now, there's some things God can't do. One of them is he can't repent. In other words, he can't, he can't, well, he can will to change, but he can't change his will. I'll say it that way. In other words, his oath, his purposes will never change because he is not a man like you and I and change our minds. God doesn't change his mind, but he can will to change. He can will to change on your behalf. If you've sinned and you come to God, see, he's going to exact punishment. But God says here, you repent and you can change his will in that sense. Okay, Because God can will to change. He can bless his people in spite of what happened. And that's what he did in David's case. Now, the sword never left his house, did it? David would have to pay in some measure because of the sin that he committed. But he was forgiven. He was, his heart was cleansed. He said, Behold, I was shapened in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so he said, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So David understood that his forgiveness came from God and from God alone. And of course he uses an analogy like hyssop, which was one of the um, uh, plants whereby they took the blood and they sprinkled it on the doorpost and the lintel because hyssop was like a sponge and it soaked up the blood as it is applied to these posts and the, and the lintel. So much so that when the Lord passed over, he saw the blood and he stayed his hand of judgment. And I'll tell you, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and we are forgiven and we have and we enter into peace and harmony and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see how we are restored to happiness. That's what David is experiencing here. He says, create, verse 10, in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore, he said in verse 12, unto me the joy of thy salvation. This is from David and a free spirit. That's amazing, isn't it? And so David is a great illustration. Here's another one. Jonah, I think is a good experience there for us to read about. Because old Jonah, he ran from the presence of the Lord. This is a minor prophet, so you're looking over here. Go past Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, after the book of Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. Jonah was told to go preach to the Ninevites. I'm not going to do that. Those Gentiles, I'm not going over those. I'm not going to do... So he jumped into a boat and took off. Can you flee from the presence of God? No. No, sir. You can make your bed where? And even there, God will bring light 
even to the darkest places on earth. If you make your, if you dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, thy right hand shall guide me and lead me. Oh, there's no getting away from God, especially in this thing about the ministry. If God has His hand on you to minister His word, you know that's a very important thing with the Lord, and it was in the case with Jonah. But you know what? He was sent into a big fish, a whale. And he was stuck there in darkness. Weeds wrapped around him. Seaweeds. I mean, it was a pretty bad place. There was no light. There was probably no sure footing. He was doing calisthenics 24-7. The guy, it was non-stop aerobics for this guy. He was in deep trouble. You know what he did? We'll make it short. He looked toward the temple. You know what that means? That he looked for forgiveness. He repented of his sins. He cried out. He cried out from the belly of that fish. There was no guarantee that he would ever see the light of day. But he repented of his sins because he knew he did wrong. And he looked to the temple because what happens at the temple? Oh, the Levite priests would sacrifice animals. And in those sacrifices it typified redemption through blood and the peace that came from it. And he looked again to the temple of God as he looked for um, propitiation or satisfaction from his own sin. He looked. And God calls on his people today to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of sins. There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood right now, even though 2,000 years later, that which was shed from Emmanuel's veins, the Calvary, is powerful today in your hearts and minds. And if you're a stubborn child of God and you're doing wickedness and you want to get out of that right now, you repent in your heart toward God. You turn from wickedness and you serve the true and the living God. And I guarantee you, based on the Word of God, that you'll find peace for your souls. You know what the Bible says back there in the book of Genesis? As we go back to this original issue, as we close and make our last illustration in the life of these sons of Jacob. It got to the point, you know, they got their food and their provisions, they saddled their ass, they took off, money's in there, everything. I mean, Joseph, they didn't know who Joseph was. But Joseph knew them. He recognized them. They're my brethren. He disguised himself. He talked through an interpreter. He, he feigned himself. So they, obviously they wouldn't recognize him. This has been over 20 years. He's probably looking like a pharaoh with the makeup. You've seen some of the movies. And in no way, shape, or form they thought he was alive. And they certainly didn't think he was Joseph. Okay? And that's the point I wanted to, want you to gather. And so they go home to Jacob and they tell him. <clears throat> they, they tell Jacob. They say, well, we can't go back because they fa- Joseph found out that my father's well. Is it well with your father, he said? Is, is your, does your father live? Yes, my father lives. And by the way, is it well... When he mentions that, the word in the Hebrew is literally shalom. Does your father have harmonious peace of, of heart? And then they mention, of course, the younger brother. Yeah, he and my dad are up there in the land of Canaan with Benjamin, the younger son, 
Oh no, Jacob says, why did you have to mention that I have another son? Because Joseph, excuse me, J- Jacob, he's afraid that he'll be bereaved of Benjamin. So he's already been bereaved of Joseph. So they had gone back and now the hunger pains have started again. And Jacob says, go on back. Go back to Egypt. Get some more grain. And uh, they, they tell Jacob, they say, we can't go back. We can't go back without Benjamin. And so now Jacob is facing the possibility of being bereaved of every one of his sons. This is like you and I going to China today and getting all the attention from the king or the president. You don't want that. Am I right about that? When you travel in distant lands, you don't want, to, you don't want the attention from the authorities. You kind of want to be undercover, so to speak. Brother Danny travels all over the world, so he knows a little bit about that. These guys were... The Pharaoh was paying attention to these Hebrews, you know, from Canaan. The last thing they want. They were already thrown in prison for three days and three nights. That was a beautiful picture of the Lord. And there were several incidences where Joseph dropped hints to them. But they didn't catch it. At one particular time, they had a banquet. And he set all the children up at the table in line of their age. How in the world did he, would this servant of Pharaoh know this? Well, Joseph knew exactly who they were. But they were bewildered. And they sat at the Pharaoh's table, if you will. But all these hints, they didn't catch. Because why? Because Joseph did not reveal himself yet to his children. To his brothers. He called them sons, but from his position I could understand that. But they were his brethren. Like the Lord Jesus, a picture of Christ. I don't care what is laid in front of you in terms of hints. You having a bad day? Go home and open up the window. Be encouraged. Look out at creation and know God loves you. Okay, there's hints all over you. All around. But we're just blinded, aren't we? Until Christ reveals himself to you. Well, anyway... Long story short, short, old Jacob is now falling back on his heels because he realizes this might be the last chance he's going to ever see his kids. So they pack up and they go back all the way to Egypt again. And there uh, something happens. There something happens. And Judah stands in front of all of them and confesses their sin. What shall we say unto my Lord, he says? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves of God? He's found out our iniquity. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. He basically confessed his sin. He realized God found him out. You know, sin will find you out. Sin will find you out. What is this that God hath done. But they were forgiven, were they not? They confessed their sins after 20 years. That was a long time of holding back, bearing a burden. There's three things that happen when you repent of sin. Number one, you are recovered from a path of destruction. Number two, you are relieved 
of a burden that's heavy and that you cannot bear alone. And number three, you are restored to fellowship and peace. Not only with God, but with one another. May the Lord bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you.